0: This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And before our program begins, I'm asking you to join your fellow listeners by sending us a donation now. It's easy to do at LOE.org or call me at 800-745-8810. Thanks. And now for the show.
1: From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A network of high-pressure gas pipelines crisscrosses the nation, a third of a million miles, and more are on the way. But as demand for gas
2: grows, so do the dangers. The notion of bringing a 42-inch high-pressure natural gas pipeline into downtown Manhattan boggles the mind. It's not a question of if something happens. It's a question of when. When? Also, counting every tree in Central Park takes
3: its toll. What I've discovered in the last two years is this was my office. I was working in the park for two and a half years. There were times when I had to convince my wife (laughs) over over dinner table discussions that I was in the park all day, but really, believe me, I was working.
1: These stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick
0: around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation. And Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville,
1: Massachusetts, this is a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Crisscrossing the nation is a huge network of pipelines carrying natural gas under high pressure. The transmission lines run about a third of a million miles over and under the United States. In addition, the boom in gas drilling and shale formations has led to thousands more miles of new gas-gathering pipelines, which are largely unregulated by federal authorities. Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood has said, quote, improving the safety of pipelines is the first thing I think of in the morning and the last thing that keeps me up at night. Well, in September 2010, the nation got a wake-up call. A pipeline exploded in the San Francisco suburb of San Bruno. Eight died, 38 homes were destroyed.
2: It sounded like a jet, almost, like a, just a giant roar and then the, the biggest boom I've ever heard in my life.
4: But it was a high-pressure natural gas line that ruptured, caused the explosion, and then fueled the spectacular blaze. The local utility company, Pacific Gas and Electric, says they will be accountable if it's determined they were at fault
1: pg owner of the pipeline, did accept responsibility for the disaster. But investigative blogger Frank Gallagher says it's not an isolated case. Frank, welcome to Living on
2: Earth. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the uh, San Bruno accident. Um, what happened? Uh, faulty valves, lack of shutoff valves. That was the you know cause of the explosion. But... At the end of the day, it was discovered that these pipelines had been uninspected for years and that PG&E, in fact, didn't have any of the records pertaining to any of the the pipelines. They couldn't even tell you exactly where they were or when the last time was that they looked at them.
1: Reading your online blog, naturalgaswatch.org, suggests very
2: strongly that this is not an isolated case. Oh, absolutely not. There are major pipeline incidents all over the country with astonishing regularity. I mean, following San Bruno, you had uh, a major explosion in Philadelphia that killed one person. You had Allentown, which killed six people, I believe. Just first week of January, you had a major explosion in Kentucky, which was the fourth major explosion in 10 years in Kentucky. I mean, these things occur with jaw-dropping regularity.
1: We have um, something like a third of a million miles of natural gas transmission lines throughout this country. It's a huge network.
2: It is, and it's expanding every day. I mean, with the discovery of the Marcello shale gas play, the goal now of these companies is to get that gas to market as quickly as possible. And the way to do that is to expand the transmission system. So they're building pipelines at an incredible pace.
1: They want to build a a pipeline uh, that's going to go through Jersey City, Bayonne, New Jersey, Staten Island and then come up in Manhattan?
2: Under the Hudson, right into lower Manhattan, just blocks away from where the World Trade Center was. The mayor of Jersey City, which is the second largest city in in New Jersey, says no way, Jose. He does, but unfortunately, you know, it's out of his hands. At the end of the day, the decision rests with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. They have final approval. So what are the concerns? Well, the concerns are very real. The concerns are that this thing could explode. I mean, if you look at Spectra Energy, their safety record got some spots on it. Spectra is the company that wants to build this. Spectra Energy is the company that wants to build this. And the notion of bringing a 42-inch high-pressure natural gas pipeline into downtown Manhattan boggles the mind. It's not a question of if something happens. It's a question of when. What's the pressure uh, of these pipelines? (sighs) Anywhere from... 1,000 to 1,200 PSI, pounds per square inch, which is enormous high pressure. Spectrum says this is going to be the
1: safest pipeline in the United States. They say we've got these robots which could detect
2: and fill leaks, that we've got these emergency valves, and you're smiling. Yes, of course I am, because that is what the pipeline companies say every time they want to build a pipeline. And I would point you to the Millennium Pipeline, in New York State, the southern tier, this thing is was built a couple, two years ago, to pipe shale gas directly off the Marcellus shale play into New York City. Two years old, this pipeline was just shut down by the feds, the Pipeline Hazardous Materials and Safety Administration, because of defective welds. And these were welds that were identified as defective before they went into the ground. One day, you know, an inspector was walking by and saw bubbles coming out of a creek which is indicative of a leak. And the feds came in, went through all the paperwork, looked at the leaks and said, this is an accident waiting to happen. Shut this thing down right now and come up with a plan to fix this or we'll shut it down for you.
1: The Congress recently passed uh, new federal regulations punishing companies that
2: violate the law, doubling the fines. Right. From what, $100,000 to $200,000? You know, a $200,000 fine, a million dollar fine is not going to bankrupt these companies. The fact is, there, as you said, are, what, 350,000 miles of transmission lines throughout this country, expanding at a rapid pace. And the federal agencies that are charged with overseeing this, you know, like every other federal agency, are underfunded, understaffed, overworked. There is absolutely no way that a couple of dozen inspectors that are assigned to these pipelines can keep up. This bill that recently passed was considered a jobs bill, and um,
1: it increases the number of inspectors from 124 to 134.
2: Right. It asked, what, 10 inspectors, you know. So the, the notion that 10 inspectors are going to be able to adequately police pipelines is absurd. It's absolutely absurd.
1: Natural gas. We've got an abundance of it. It's cheap. It burns clean. It's considered a bridge fuel until we can get to renewable
2: resources? Right, right. Well, it's cheap depending on what you consider cheap. If you're talking strictly dollars and cents, you can maybe make a case that it's cheap. If you want to add in all the other costs, the societal costs that occur and that have to be paid for getting this gas out of the ground and into market, it becomes extraordinarily expensive. Because shale gas over and above traditional gas has a carbon cost of getting it from the wellhead to market that puts it if cornell research uh, is to be believed makes it more carbon intensive than coal we will put more carbon into the air extracting this natural gas than you would if you just went and burned coal because this stuff needs truck after truck after truck to get it out into market i mean you have water that has to be trucked in injected then removed trucked out for example there are days in wyoming where a rural Wyoming, this is farm country, cows, ranchers, have worse air quality than Los Angeles. Because? Because of natural gas drilling. Natural gas is
1: methane. methane Absolutely. Methane is a
2: very powerful greenhouse gas. It's, a, if depending on who you talk to, it's anywhere from 20 to 30 times more damaging than carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And they're venting the stuff off freely. You know, if you consider all those costs, then suddenly natural gas becomes not so cheap.
1: Frank Gallagher's investigative blog is called naturalgaswatch.org. Frank Gallagher, thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Professor Vaughn Bryant of Texas A&M University is a crime scene investigator. When it comes to analyzing the not-so-sweet side of life, they don't get any nittier or grittier than Professor Bryant. He's the nation's premier melissio palynologist. The web-based publication Food Safety News recently called upon the good professor to investigate a sticky crime scene. Hello, Professor.
5: Glad to be here. What's
1: a melissio
5: palynologist? It's melissio palynology. If you want to really literally translate it, melissio refers to sweet... Palinology is a technical term for the study of pollen. Malicio palinology is somebody who looks at pollen and honey.
1: So Food Safety News wanted to do a sting operation into the sale of honey in the United States, and they called upon you.
5: That's true. Uh, They had been hearing that uh, a lot of the honey produced in the United States had the pollen removed. And, of course, once you take the pollen out, you don't know two things. The first thing you do not know is where the honey was produced, And the second thing you do not know is exactly what flowers the bees were utilizing in order to produce the honey. And the reason Food Safety News was concerned about this was because China has been, uh, for a number of years, guilty of dumping honey on the international market, and particularly in the United States. So kind of honey laundering. Yes. (laughs) Well, because there's a 250% tariff on Chinese honey, they've been sending it to other countries like Vietnam and Cambodia and Indonesia and Malaysia and India and places. And then those countries were um, then exporting it to the United States and claiming that it was domestic honey from those countries. And so the American uh, Beekeeping Federation and the National Honey Board and others have consistently requested... The uh, federal government to uh, enforce some kind of a truth in labeling. But the federal government has been dragging their feet for years, and um, most other countries in the world have truth in labeling. You cannot export anything to the EU unless you certify where the honey comes from and what is in the honey, or they won't allow you to import it. So what does the USDA say about this? The USDA basically says that as long as you do not add other sugars or as long as you do not add extra water and as long as you take out any of the bee parts, meaning legs and wings and stuff, that you can sell it as honey. That's the only requirement. They have no other requirements.
1: So if you take out the pollen from honey, what are you left with?
5: Well, if you take the pollen out, the only thing you've got is sugar. So the the pollen is really the only nutrient material in, in honey. I mean, the pollen does, in fact, contain amino acids. It contains starches. Uh, it also contains fats and vitamins and uh, various kinds of minerals. And a lot of people eat honey because of the nutritional values that they're getting from the pollen.
1: Well, you found, and Food Safety News reports, that 100% of the honey that was purchased from CVS Pharmacy, Walgreens, Rite Aid, had no pollen, and therefore really wasn't honey. Uh, Ditto for McDonald's. I guess three-quarters of the honey purchased at Costco, Target, Sam's Club, Walmart didn't have any
5: pollen either. Well, that's true. You know, quite frankly, what I tell people is caveat emptor, meaning let the buyer beware, because most of what you buy in the store in terms of honey is not what the label says. One of the things that we have discovered, not only can we not tell where the stuff comes from, but premium honey that's being sold uh, like uh, buckwheat or orange blossom or sage or thyme honey, and people are willing to pay premium prices for this uh, very exotic types of honey, we can't confirm that any of that stuff is actually coming from those plants because there's no pollen. I've been telling people for years, the only way to really guarantee you're getting good honey is to buy it locally, in other words, buy it for the beekeeper or or buy local honey that is being sold in grocery stores and so forth, because all of this commercial stuff isn't honey. So, Professor Bryant, is there any way
1: the average honey eater can taste test for the presence of pollen?
5: I doubt that very seriously. And I do know that there are professional uh, honey tasters. Uh, you know, they say, oh, well, I can tell the difference between a sourwood and an orange blossom and stuff like that. But quite frankly, I don't know whether or not they could actually tell if the pollen was removed or not. I, myself, I love honey. I eat all kinds of honey. But I'd be honest with you, I can't tell the difference whether there's pollen in it or not in most cases. But again, I'm not a professional honey taster. I am a honey tester. So,
1: Professor, are there any crime scene honey investigations other than this one that you've cracked?
5: Well, I tell you, you know, in addition to looking for uh, pollen and honey, I also... uh, Do kind of CSI work. I work with uh, law enforcement agencies looking for uh, pollen and trying to catch criminals. And a a case that I worked on a couple of years ago was in Rochester, New York, where they had a teenage girl who was uh, murdered in uh, 1979, and it was a cold case. And uh, they reopened the case uh, just about a year ago, and I suggested that they send me the clothing. And after doing a thorough uh, pollen investigation of her clothing, I determined she probably came from San Diego, California, which, of course, shocked the people in Rochester. The last I heard, they were investigating missing um, teenagers in California back in 1979.
1: Well, Professor, thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. Vaughan Bryant is director of the Paleontology Research Laboratory at Texas A&M University. Just ahead, documenting the twists and turns of the nation's first offshore wind project. Keep listening to Living on Earth. You're listening to a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman.
3: If you're fond of sand dunes and salty air.
1: Lobster stew in an ocean view. Winding roads and strong winds off the water beckon you. We've got just the place.
6: You should have fallen in love with those. Cape Cod. Cape Cod. That
1: old Cape Cod. Cape Cod juts out like an arm in a prizefighter's fist into the Atlantic, five miles off the southern shore in Nantucket Sound. Beyond the sun, sand, and surf, the wind blows steady and strong. For ten years, this vacation haven has been the scene of a knockdown, dragout fight over citing the nation's first offshore wind farm. The Cape Wind Project, as it's called, has come out the winner, having received all of the necessary state and federal approvals. And the decade-long battle is now chronicled in the new documentary, Cape Spin, An American Power Struggle. Robbie Gemmel is producer and director of Cape Spin.
7: I actually started following the story in 2001 when I was in college. I was absolutely mesmerized that it has carried on this long and is still thriving more than ever.
1: Well, why? What is it about this project that so divides people?
7: I would say the scale of it and asking a community that has many generations on the Cape and Islands to embrace such a large-scale industrial project, when for the most part, despite all the development that has happened on the Cape, these communities have really gone out of their way to preserve the natural beauty and also the history of the Cape and islands
1: when they were originally proposing this way back when it was something like 170 towers and turbines right
7: correct it was 170 and then shortly thereafter they downsized it to 130 turbines still takes up a lot of water yeah that's correct it is a fairly large footprint the turbines themselves i think are 16 feet wide but the entire wind farm is spread across 25 miles
1: uh, on the pro side, you've got the developer, Jim Gordon, who wants to build the
5: wind farm. The Cape and Islands, according to the American Lung Association, has the worst air quality in Massachusetts. So we thought that by developing a major wind power project, we could supply 75% of the Cape and Islands' electricity... With zero pollutant emissions, zero water consumption, and zero waste discharge.
1: On the other side, you've got the Alliance to Preserve Nantucket Sound, which was first financed by Bill Koch, who's the fossil fuel energy billionaire. I don't think he had any access, or at least he didn't do any interviews with Bill Koch.
7: Yeah, that's correct. Um, It's a rather interesting scenario to have a fossil fuel billionaire as the chairman of an environmental group fighting to protect a natural resource. Bill Koch has been completely unresponsive to doing an interview or talking to us in any capacity. I must say the proponents of the wind farm really welcomed us with open arms and were eager to jump in front of our cameras. The opposition was much more challenging to navigate. But eventually, they definitely let us in and trusted that we were doing an objective documentary.
1: This project has really created some very strange bedfellows. You've got Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, who opposes it.
0: The interests of uh, our state have been basically submerged for a special interest developer. We're going to find out that taxpayers are going to pay... $800 million to this developer. They'll get money that they won't be able to count.
1: And Senator Ted Stevens from Alaska, he opposed it.
7: Senator Kennedy was clearly the preeminent senator fighting Alaskan uh, oil drilling, which Ted Stevens had been wanting to push through for a decade. So for them to become buddies in this fight was quite bizarre but it was obvious why and how they were doing it because the alaskan senators were working on coast guard legislation which was very convenient to try to slip riders into to kill the wind farm
1: there's a part of the film where you've got one of the lobbyists who's working uh, to support the project and he talks about well nimby not in my backyard
8: not here and not there and not over here and certainly not in my backyard first of all it's five and a half miles out
9: in the atlantic ocean And these people who say, not in my backyard, it begs the question, how big is their backyard?
7: (laughs) So that's obviously a very popular environmental term and slogan that's been the crux of many environmental battles. Interestingly enough, most of them have been fighting fossil fuel power plants and what a lot of people refer to as dirty energy. So to have that applied to a renewable energy project may be a first.
1: Probably the most powerful scene for me in the movie is the uh, mountaintop removal, the coal mining, where they're blowing up the tops of these mountains in, in Virginia, West Virginia. Why did you include them?
7: Well, for one, I mean, I think it's really important for people to keep in mind where our energy comes from when we turn on the light switch. But it wasn't even a stretch to include that because those people were coming to the hearings on the capes, begging people to understand what they're going through, and they were obviously supporting the wind farm.
8: In October of 2001, a giant slurry impoundment, 72 acres of toxic coal sludge, failed. Everything in it died. 309 million gallons of toxic sludge, and I bet nobody in here heard about it because the folks in Appalachia are expendable. And we're tired of bearing the burden of everybody's energy use.
7: They were holding up pictures and telling stories of rocks rolling through their homes and killing three-year-olds and the mudslides that were filling their rivers of coal sludge. So it's a pretty gut-wrenching picture to understand what's going on down there to supply our country with energy.
8: I'm sorry, I, I, I do have some sympathy for those who are concerned about their view, but come and see the view sheds and how they've been despoiled in
4: Appalachia.
1: You know, for something so serious, your film has a lot of funny scenes in it.
7: This controversy has divided families and the community and we felt that the community really needed to feel some levity out of this controversy and both sides are incredibly brilliant, passionate and very funny characters and what they've done to fight both for and against it is just absolutely mesmerizing, hilarious at times, gut-wrenching, sad, so we kind of went out of our way to try to have as much fun with it as we could.
1: You must have had fun uh, choosing the music. There's a lot of music in this.
7: Yeah, we've been trying to go with kind of an Americana theme because we do want to use this story to kind of broaden out into the bigger picture and push off of this controversy and use the lessons learned to help people navigate future energy crises. The piece of music that I particularly like, and I don't like this
1: song, but I like the way you
7: used it, is the old,
1: I think it's Blood, Sweat and Tears song, uh, Spinning Wheel.
7: Right, yeah, it's uh, obviously such a great fit for us. We use the title Cape Spin for the double entendre, obviously because the spin of the turbines, but also the political spin, the media spin. There's so much spin, so when we uh, came up with that song, we were pretty excited to integrate it into the film. What
0: goes up
2: must come down
5: Think back on how favorable the Boston Globe has been to Cape Wind.
2: Every newspaper got their sort
3: of uh, peg by either side.
6: Is waiting just
0: for you. Editorials were absurd. They were informed by nothing, but so far as I could tell, the views, the friendships, the prejudices of the editor
7: at that
2: time and the publisher.
1: Did you ever count how many edits you made in this? How many fast cuts? <laughs>
7: Uh, We have over 550 hours of footage that we've been whittling down to 90 minutes for the past two and a half years, so it's been quite a beast.
1: And you use it to basically kind of put the politics in juxtaposition. It keeps on going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth.
7: Yeah, there's just so many bizarre approaches and angles to pushing this project forward and also to killing it and the way people have collaborated from so many different camps has been really, really fascinating to witness and understand and enlightening, actually, in terms of understanding how politics works and how large-scale energy projects get built and get squashed.
1: When you were making this film, did you find yourself at one point saying, hey, yeah, I really support the project, and then turning around saying, ah, oh, I really am against the project?
7: Oh, constantly. My main arc was um, I first learned about the project when I was a sophomore in college, and then I followed it for several years, when I was pitching it to many different companies. And throughout that phase, I really thought it should happen, and then I ended up being a mate on a fishing boat in Nantucket to really immerse myself in the community And then I did start to understand why people cared so much about protecting Nantucket Sound. And in the end, I guess it's just going to be really interesting to see what happens. So is it over? I definitely would not say it's over. The proponents are not backing down. There are still a few lawsuits pending. Cape Wind and the proponents claim none of them would be able to stop them from moving forward. I'm sure if it is built, the proponents will be going out of their way to find and highlight every single thing that's wrong with it. So I I don't think this is going away anytime soon.
1: Well, the problem is, are you going to go away? Uh, You know, Are you going to continue (laughs) to follow the project, or are you going to stop filming, or or what?
7: I more or less told myself a year ago that this is probably a lifelong endeavor I'm going to be involved with in some capacity. (laughs) Well, Robbie, thank you so very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Robbie
1: Gemmel is producer and director of Cape Spin.
5: What goes up must come down. Spinning wheel got to go round. Talking about your troubles, it's a crying sin. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel spin.
1: Oceans cover more than 70% of the Earth, yet scientists have barely scratched the surface in terms of plumbing the wealth of information beneath the waves. That's where new surf-riding robots come in. Producer Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix has a report on data-collecting seagoing drones.
4: At the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's lab in Seattle, two scientists are standing over what looks like a chubby, neon-yellow surfboard. Right, so if you look at it, it's a very elegant device. And we can move, we can't move very fast, but nonetheless we can go one to two knots
2: on this, which is fantastic for a lot of ocean research.
4: Chris Meinig is an engineer at NOAA's Pacific Marine Environmental Lab. He's looking at one of NOAA's newest research toys a wave glider.
2: So what we have here is a robotic vehicle that consists of two parts. The bottom part is is the tractor that looks like a sideways set of Venetian blinds, and it gains forward propulsion based on heave.
4: This tricked-out surfboard is powered by the rise and fall of the waves and the solar panels strapped on top. It can be remotely directed on long missions out into the open ocean. And while spending months at sea, wave gliders can collect loads of scientific information that gets sent back to land via satellite. Chris Sabine also works at NOAA and helped design the sensors strapped on top of their wave gliders.
9: These data sets are so rich that, you know, my focus is on understanding ocean acidification and CO2, but they were very interesting features that we saw in the currents that another researcher may be interested in using that information to better understand what they're studying.
4: The sensors also collect data on water temperatures, pH, salinity, and oxygen levels. Sabine says wave gliders will help scientists get important information directly to the people that need it. Take the issue of ocean acidification. Every year, winds and currents cause acidic water from deep below the ocean's surface to upwell in coastal waters. This is a natural occurrence that's been made worse by our contribution of CO2 to the atmosphere. And it's bad news if you're a shellfish farmer larval shellfish can't form their shells in more acidic water. And in recent years, farmers have lost thousands of dollars when whole batches of baby shellfish die during acidic upwellings. Sabine says wavegliders could lend some predictability to the problem by helping farmers plan when to spawn their shellfish to avoid acidic waters.
9: We can say, hey, in two days you're going to have this event coming into the estuary, watch out for it, and they'll know ahead of time rather than seeing something happening and going, ooh, quick, shut it all down.
4: Scientists and shellfish farmers aren't the only ones putting wave gliders to work. Bill Vass is the CEO of Liquid Robotics, the company that invented the wave glider.
9: Our biggest customers right now are oil and gas and defense, but we'll be branching out into fisheries, narrowing in on some wind farming opportunities and some communication and security opportunities.
4: Vass says inventing the wave glider was essentially like inventing and patenting the wheel of the ocean. The potential applications are endless. Oil and gas companies use them to monitor their wells and for exploration. Wave gliders were used to assess the Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf. They can be used for fisheries management to count tagged fish. They can be sent out to collect data on potential sites for offshore wind or wave power development. And they can also be rigged up with acoustic monitoring devices, which has made them an easy sell to the Navy and intelligence agencies.
9: We can't really talk a lot about what the intelligence agencies use the wave gliders for, but you can use your imagination.
4: And the price tag? A bottom of the line model will run you about $200,000. You
9: could drop 500 grand for a really tricked out one, yeah.
4: Can I request a color?
9: Yeah, yeah. So they come in blue, gray, white, and as scuba divers, we refer to as Bite Me Yellow, which is that very bright, high visibility yellow that they paint scuba tanks with.
4: And yes, they have had one shark attack.
9: It was towing a 30-meter acoustic array. It was doing marine mammal study. And the acoustic array was wrapped around its fins, which was making it swim much slower than normal. So we picked it up, and it had big shark bites in its fins. So the shark had obviously grabbed it and shook it and then got the array tangled around the fins.
4: The company has raised $40 million in investment money and sells close to 200 gliders a year. There are other companies designing seagoing robots, but they're mainly used for underwater work and lack the ability to network with other gliders to exchange information. I'm Ashley Ahern in Seattle. Our story on
1: wave gliders comes to us by way of the public media collaborative EarthFix. Coming up, speedy evolution, studying the
0: red-shouldered soapberry bug. Say that three times fast. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Breckenridge Capital Advisors, applying a sustainable approach to fixed income investing. www.breckenridge.com The Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's a recycled edition
1: of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Evolution has slowly shaped life on our planet as genetic adaptations arise in response to changes in the environment. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you can actually watch evolution in real time. Ari Daniel Shapiro has our story.
6: When you keep red-shouldered soapberry bugs, that's Jadera hematoloma, in the lab, it's only a matter of time before one's on the loose. David Angelini moves vials and flasks to the side as he corners a female soapberry bug who's scuttling away. Angelini's a biologist at American University. At last, he picks up the thumbnail-sized bug and places her on what looks like a mini air hockey rink. Low levels of carbon dioxide pour out of the little holes, gradually anesthetizing the bug. Angelini adjusts the focus of his microscope, and I peer down at her. She's beautiful. Her wings are a glittery black.
8: Yeah, looks like asphalt after a rainstorm. It's very nice.
6: And right where her wings connect to her body are two flashes of bright red. Angelini's eager to show me her other side. We can flip her over. She won't object. She's that same bright red underneath and she's got a lineup of little black appendages the antennae the legs the genitalia the mouthparts these mouthparts are called the beak and it looks like a long straw it looks more like an elephant trunk honestly Except that it doesn't extend out in front. The beak tucks under a soapberry bug, pointing backwards. It works like a tiny syringe that can pierce the dark, round seeds of a plant called the balloon vine. That's a cardiospermum, a native vine in Florida and the the U.S. southeast. Before the balloon vine releases its seeds, though, they grow inside these leafy capsules or pods shaped like little balloons. The pod is full of air. It's just the covering keeping bugs away from the seeds. But the pods don't keep a soapberry bug away. It perches itself on the balloon, punctures the pod with its beak, and skewers the seeds inside. The beak's the perfect size to do the job, about 70% of the bug's total length. Or at least that's how big it was before 1950. Angelini and his graduate student, Stacey Baker, walk me across campus towards the chemistry building.
4: So right outside of that building is where the golden rain tree is.
6: The golden rain tree, or Curateria paniculata, is originally from Taiwan. But around 1950, this tree, among others, was shipped to Florida for landscaping purposes. And the golden rain tree, it's related to the balloon vine. It has the same kind of leafy pods, except a little smaller. It's got the same sort of dark round seeds. And it wasn't long before the soapberry bugs of Florida started dining on them. In the last 60 years, golden rain trees have been planted throughout the U.S., as far west as California and as far north as Washington, D.C., in backyards, in gardens, and on college campuses, like American University, where Angelini works.
8: When I first started this, I had no idea how prevalent golden rain trees were. We started getting tips, so we drove all over creation looking for them, and then we discovered this one right on our doorstep. So, Sorry, was that one of them? Yes.
4: So this is a baby.
6: The really large tree that's behind these hollies, that's a golden rain tree. You know, it's funny, they don't look out of place. They blend right in. I know, a Taiwanese tree, but here in D.C., you'd never know that it was anything special. And as the trees have traveled the U.S., so have the soapberry bugs.
8: So this sidewalk and uh, down by the base of that tree is where we've actually collected most
6: of the bugs that we used. Used, that is, back in his lab. You see, Angelini studies evolution, and something remarkable has happened to the population of soapberry bugs feeding on golden rain tree seeds. They've adapted fast. It was discovered that their mouthparts were now about
8: 30% shorter. That's because the seed pods were smaller, and that's not all. They were making more babies. The babies lived at a higher rate, um, and their, their flight muscles were also smaller. Basically, all this evolutionary change had happened in about 100 generations, so in about 50 years. And in evolutionary terms, that's that's remarkably fast.
4: Very fast, because if you think about evolution, we think millions of years, thousands of years. We can see it in a lifetime.
6: Baker and Angelini want to know which of the soapberry bug's 15,000 genes have made these evolutionary changes possible. But it's not just about this bug.
8: I mean, it's easy to look around in the world and see biological diversity. And That arises through evolution, and what we really want to do is we want to be able to understand at a fundamental, at a genetic level, what is producing this
6: diversity that we see. Darwin's theory of evolution relied on observing species that had already diverged from one another. But the soapberry bug is an example of evolution in action, in the wild, and inside the span of a single researcher's career. Angelini wants to know all the genetic differences between the new population of bugs on the golden rain tree and those still living on the balloon vine in Florida. That's the big dream. But until then, he and Stacy Baker will go on corralling hundreds of soapberry bugs. Got him. Oh,
8: nope, lost him.
6: For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro.
1: Ari's story comes to us from the series One Species at a Time, which is produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. Learn more at our website, loe.org.
0: It's
1: 7.30 Saturday morning. I woke up in the city that never sleeps. And here, at the West 72nd Street entrance to New York Central Park, dogs tug on leashes and joggers yawn and stretch, getting ready to run. Take just a few steps into the park and the air quickly cools and the city quiets. Nearby a dogwood tree and next to it, a tall lean man in khakis with a backpack and binoculars turned the wrong way around. He's using them as a microscope
3: to study a leaf. My name is Ken Chea and I'm a New Yorker and I'm a graphic designer and an artist. I'm just a guy that really got interested in the park and its wildlife and its plant life and I've been walking around the park as a birder for 20 years and only in the last few years did I discover the world of trees.
1: And how Ken Chea and Ned Barnard spent the last two years surveying every square inch of Central Park's 843 acres, counting and mapping virtually every single tree of significant size. The result?
3: Central Park
1: Entire, the definitive illustrated folding map.
3: All 19,933 trees on this map represent real trees in the park. It's a a work of uh, many, many hours and miles walking through the park and identifying trees and placing them precisely where they occur.
1: So uh, if I pull out your map, Mm -hmm.
3: I want you to find this tree. Okay. We're standing in strawberry fields. Strawberry Fields is this teardrop shape. Right off 72nd Street. And there's the imagined mosaic just across the path. And we're here. <laughs> and this is the American elm we're looking at right here.
1: It's unbelievable
3: that you've mapped every single tree. And the American elm has, has these lovely serpentine limbs that reach out and snake around. It's enormous. Oh, yes, it is. Here in Central Park, you will find the largest stand of American Elms in the world, in the entire world, and that's on the Mall. There's also the largest largest line of American Elms on Fifth Avenue, just outside the park, and that runs for nearly two and a half miles, from 59th Street to 110th Street. Which is the length of the park. That's correct. Let's take a look. People come here think this is what Manhattan really looked like, before the city grew up, and it's not true. This area that we call Central Park was actually a desolate swamp.
1: Then in 1857, landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted and his partner Calvert Vox won a design competition. And over the next 16 years, they
3: transformed the swamp into Central Park. And what I discovered is as, I, as I began to walk through the park and learn how to identify trees and learn how to appreciate them I began to see Olmsted's vision. I began to see how he used trees the way an artist uses color and texture and how he created walls, corners, curtains, all sorts of textures by his use of and his his masterful planting of trees. This place that looks so natural is
1: totally contrived he designed every nook cranny rock
3: tree blade of grass it's the most natural looking unnatural place probably on the planet i was reading about Olmsted, and he would
1: play tricks optical illusions mm-hmm. with foliage and trees he would put dark trees in the foreground and then the light colored trees in the background and it would give the sense of depth
3: yes Frederick Law Olmsted was an illusionist. He was also a a brilliant mind who people said could think and see in terms of decades. So as little saplings were being put in, he could actually envision what they would look like 10 or 20 or even 30 years later. What he wanted to do there, I believe, was take people out of the congested concrete sea level city experience and give them an open wide pastoral experience here in Central Park. Once this enormous masterpiece of American design and landscaping opened it, I think it taught the people of New York and then the nation that cities could be beautiful. They didn't need to be all buildings and tenements, and you could have a nature experience in the middle of one of the most populous cities in the world.
1: Okay, so let's keep keep walking.
3: Over in that grove over there is uh, at least two trees that are one of a kind in the entire park. There's a, an unusual tree called a franklinia, the only one in the park, and just beyond it, if we were to take this walk around, there's an olive tree, a Russian olive, the only one in the park. Over here, I, I want to show you something because this is a real rarity. If we, if we walk over to this little rock outcrop, and actually, right here, this is good. If we stare straight through, we're looking at three very tall trees at the end of this meadow. These trees are known as Dawn Redwoods. Now, the interesting thing about Dawn Redwoods is they were believed to be extinct until 1941 when a grove of them was discovered on a high mountaintop in China. So here we are, we're looking at something that history had written off with the dinosaurs. And there's three of them at the north end of Strawberry Fields.
1: I have a question for you. Oh,
3: I'm not a, I'm not a tree guy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that this is a sycamore. You are half right. This tree is a London Plain. It's a hybrid between an American sycamore and an Asian sycamore. London Plains are hardy trees that, that tolerate uh, drought, compacted soil air pollution, people on cell phones, you name it, they're <laughs> tough New York trees. And if you they, can make it here, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. And Mar, uh, Robert Moses, who was the parks commissioner in the 1930s, planted almost all of the tre- the London planes we're seeing now in the park. This probably wouldn't have been the choice of Frederick Law Olmsted to plant that many, but th- this, this is the way the park has evolved from its earliest days to, to today.
1: This, I'm looking, you, you can almost not take a, a view, perspective here, a view, it without seeing birds and
3: birds and birds. Yes. We're hearing robins, cat birds. Uh, I hear a red-eyed vireo right above us. The trees create this wonderful habitat for birds. I've been birding for two decades in Central Park. It is one of the world's most famous places to bird. I've met people who have traveled here from Asia and Europe just to Bird in Central Park. Forget about Broadway and Times Square. They come here for the birds. <laughs> and one of the reasons we have so many birds in Central Park, well, I could give you two very good ones. Central Park is located right on the Atlantic Flyway. So it's an it's a, a important stop right on the migration route. But two, the variety of trees that we have here that produce food for birds in all seasons whether you eat insects or you eat seeds or you eat fruit or you eat sap or you eat insect larvae that's underneath the bark there are trees here that provide all of that it's an abundance of food source for birds in all four seasons particularly during the migration in the fall and spring
1: it smells fantastic it's amazing it's like
3: being in a in a a flower shop or something i'm I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh we have uh wild roses here in front of us that's what that is yes we we also we also have um and these are all plantings of course we also have linden trees that are still in bloom that we're getting some some fragrance from and when you realize that many of the flowers on the trees are only here for a short time. We have a very, very small window to enjoy the lovely colors and and the aroma. And that only happens once a year. And maybe we have 10 days or maybe 12 or 14 days. Uh, It makes me think deeper thoughts about time and the environment and uh, decisions that I want to make about my life. How so? Well, I could... I could decide to spend a good portion of my time in an office, and I've done that for 30 years, but what I've discovered in the last two years is this was my office. I was working in the park for two and a half years. There were times when I had to convince my wife <laughs> over the over dinner table discussions that I was in the park all day, but really, believe me, I was working. And, of course, she and my son... Joan and Lucas both would sometimes roll their eyes and say, well, there goes Dad talking about trees again, and he's been in the park all day again today. But now they're seeing with the map being out and orders coming in, and I'm grateful for that because I want to share my experience and what I've discovered and the appreciation I have for this wonderful place called Central Park with other people. Well, Ken, thank you so much. That was great fun. i've I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. It was my pleasure. Uh, and uh, anytime you want to come back to Central Park and take a walk with me, just give me a call.
1: Birder, tree lover, and graphic artist Ken Chea. He and Ned Bonner created Central Park Entire the definitive illustrated folding map. For photos of our trip around Central Park and a link for more information about the map, head to our website, LOE.org. the next Living on Earth, a musician sings the praises of an island nation's forests.
6: Madagascar is known for its biodiversity and for its beautiful endemic species. And if we cut these trees, we'll have no more animals living in them. We'll have no more trees. We'll just become a desert.
1: Preserving Madagascar's forests next time on Living on Earth. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lovett, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Kern, Ike Shriskandaraja, and Jeff Young, with help from Megan Miner, Gabriella Ramino, and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Annabelle Ford, Christy Pereira, and Annie Sneed. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at loe.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Curwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce
0: Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds.